Some in the Bernie Sanders campaign are complaining that CNN and other Democrat insiders are changing the format of the next debate to favor Joe Biden. For instance, while past debates have featured the candidates standing on stage at podiums and fielding questions from moderators, CNN is proposing that in the next debate, candidates will sit on porches and rocking chairs, quietly reminiscing about the good old days when they were vice president to that nice colored fellow, whatever his name was, it's sometimes so hard to remember. In past debates, candidates raised their hands to attract the notice of the moderators and then addressed issues for a specific period of time. In the next debate, candidates will simply maunder incomprehensibly until it becomes unbearable to watch and then have campaign workers submit their positions in writing. Past debates sometimes erupted into fierce exchanges where the candidates would talk over one another. To avoid that in the next debate, CNN proposes that moderators will only ask questions that can be reasonably answered by old videos of Joe Biden speaking about an issue when he was a younger man and could still put a sentence together. Those videos will then be shown to Bernie Sanders, who will be allowed to respond sometime after the election. Along with the new rules, CNN has also announced its new list of debate moderators, who will choose the questions and set the tone of the debate. These moderators will be Hunter Biden, a Milwaukee prostitute who plans to make a killing at the convention, and Chuck Todd. In a formal letter of complaint to the DNC, Bernie Sanders said, quote, clearly the Democrat establishment is conspiring to hand this election to a mental defective who will destroy the country through incompetence rather than one who will destroy it through lunatic economic schemes and an immoral realignment of our foreign policy. That is totally unfair, unquote. Another candidate, Tulsi Gabbard, has also complained about the debate rules, specifically the one that says no girls allowed. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. So one of the lessons we're learning from the Wuhan flu or relearning from the Wuhan flu is that the world remains exactly what it's always been, the world. It's full of corruption and incompetence, fake news, and easily panicked crowds, tragic inevitabilities, and people looking for a chance to blame their enemies for things that probably can't be helped. The virus will spread, people will get sick, some will die, the media will try to blame Trump, and the Italians will make a crazy mess out of everything, and then this too will pass. Now, since I'm exactly the sort of person who dies from things like this, I'm an old codger with bum lungs, let me make a point before I go. A crisis like this is the time when experts and authorities can really shine. It's a comprehensible event requiring lots of specific technical information, which then has to be translated into organized short-term action. To give an example, you have to find a vaccine and get the vaccine out to the public. This is what governments are good for. So it's during a time like this that those people who have tyranny in their hearts start to push big government. They'll say, look how the Chinese can quarantine whole masses of people so efficiently, or look how well the government is running our healthcare. Wouldn't you like it to run our healthcare all the time? That's what Rahm Emanuel meant when he said, never let a crisis go to waste. And that's why the left is always declaring a crisis. The weather is a crisis. Inequality is a crisis. Thursday is a crisis. Because expertise and efficient authority help in a crisis. It's a time when Democrats, NBC News, and other tyrants can use your panic 
to push their big government agenda. But it's a scam. A crisis, by definition, is an unusual and limited event. It taps into the skills of experts and authorities in the same way a toothache taps into the skills of dentists. Just because you need a filling doesn't mean the dentist should run your life. In normal times, experts and authorities can be the biggest buffoons of all because they don't know what they don't know and they can't do what they think they can. Individual creators driven by normal human motives like curiosity, greed, and glory, people like the Wright brothers and Bill Gates, are more likely to change the world for the better than massive sclerotic bureaucracies and their five-year plans to steal your money and produce nothing. One of the reasons Trump's America First agenda works so well is because it's simple enough for the government to put into practice. Guys like Obama, who think they know how the whole world works, make a mess out of everything. Guys like Trump, who just want to clean up their neighborhood, have taken on as much as government can reasonably handle. So let's let this crisis go to waste. Turn off cable news, do whatever Mike Pence tells you to do, and when it's over, go back to trying to destroy every useless bureaucracy from the Department of Education to the EPA. Free men and women can work together in a crisis, but the rest of the time, we are all much better off when we work on and for our own. All right, your smile. You got to talk about your smile. A good smile is a thing that you need. It's a thing that is going to take you forward in life. Yesterday, I was at uh, the University of Iowa in Ames, Iowa, and uh, just seeing all those smiles just uh, made me a happy guy. You want your smile to look good? Go to Candid. Go to Candid.co because they will help you fix your teeth so when you smile, you don't feel bad. Unlike braces, Candid Clear Aligners are comfortable, removable, totally invisible, so you can transform your smile without anyone noticing a thing. Plus, you never have to set foot in a doctor's office or a waiting room. Your treatment is prescribed and monitored remotely by a licensed orthodontist. With other remote Clear Aligner options, you may never hear from a doctor. Candid only works with experienced orthodontists, only experts in tooth movement, never general dentists. With Candid, the average treatment length is just six months, and you'll start seeing results way before then. All right, if you are ready to take your first step towards straighter teeth for a limited time, you can get started with 75 bucks off by using code Claven at candidco.com slash Claven. That's candidco.com slash Claven. Use code Claven for 75 bucks off candidco.com slash Claven. Code Claven. How do you spell Claven? That's that is exactly how you spell Claven. Tomorrow is the mailbag. You will want to be there because all that's right. That's that is how you want to sound when you want when you wake up in the morning. That's the first thing you want to come out of your mouth. Uh, so you want to send in your questions today. You got to be a subscriber. So subscribe uh, now while while I'm speaking. You can subscribe now, and then send in your questions about anything. You can ask me about. Politics, religion, your personal life, all my answers are guaranteed 100% correct, and they will change your life. Will they change your life for the better? You're going to have to tune in tomorrow to find out. So <laughs> I just want to play quickly uh, uh, one clip by Nancy Pelosi, who is in Northeastern University uh, at, uh, in Boston. Uh, I think it was yesterday. But anyway, here is what she was talking about the next election. This election is a very important election, in my view, civilization as we know it at, at, 
is at stake. Uh, it is, it, it's about everything. It's about America. We ask God to bless America. What is America? America is our constitution. America is our constitution with our, the genius of a separation of powers, Bill of Rights, a republic if you can keep it, Benjamin Franklin. All of the Bill of Rights and all that that contains, and that is under siege. It is, I think there's a disloyalty to the constitution. So at this point, she's a babbling maniac, but still, this is what they've been pushing with Donald Trump all this time. Yesterday, we had a massive stock dump. I mean, the stocks just really dropped by something like 2,000 points. And what's interesting about it is when they dropped by 2,000 points, they're still at record highs. I mean, you know, it was a it was a bad thing. It was a bad day in the stock market. The Saudi leader, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, got in a price war, uh, an oil price war with Vladimir Putin. Salmon started dropping the price of oil. And what people worried about, part of it was just panic. People started running into gold and stuff like that. But what people were worried about is it would hurt our economy because we are now such, because of fracking, we're such producers of energy that they're afraid that our economy would suffer by the drop in prices and the, the uh, lower oil demands because of the virus, people driving more less and taking planes less. So there'd be less oil demands. So everyone around the world is worried about our economy. Why? Because our economy is working so much better than everybody else's. Why? Because Donald Trump dropped taxes, dropped regulations, became a cheerleader for America, became a cheerleader for America first, and started doing things that the government could handle. So all this stuff about how, what a panic we should be in and how terrible the guy is, is, is utterly absurd. I mean, even now, this is his first real crisis. As I said, this is the first non-make-believe crisis, the first crisis that wasn't invented by Adam Schiff. But even now, this is a test for him. There's no question about it. But the idea that he has been doing a bad job and we've been under threat up till now is a complete fantasy. And a lot of what they're saying about the virus is a fantasy as well. So let's talk about this virus panic because it really is unbelievable. The stuff about this biz- the business being hurt, business is being hurt by the virus panic, but it's being hurt by the panic more than the disease. I mean, so far the disease, look, the disease is spreading. It's going to spread. People are going to get, most of the people who die are apparently really compromised, uh, you know, and people in their 80s with underlying conditions. But the panic is really bad. So Dr. Drew is the guy who's been speaking about this, and he's really, he's the only voice to me of reason out there. Here he is uh, just describing what's going on, Dr. Drew Pinsky. We are not overreacting. The press is overreacting, and it makes me furious. The press should not be reporting medical stories as though they know how to report it. We will, if we have a pandemic, I won't know how to tell that we're actually having a pandemic because everything is an emergency. Mm. People that are infectious disease specialists, the CDC, the epidemiologists need to take this very seriously. The press needs to shut up mm. because you're more likely to die of influenza that's right, what it, right that's now. What, that's right what now. doctors are saying. However, and may, I'm not trying to go against you, but I have a question. It is now beat so in terms of fatalities, 362, and they're saying, but his fatality rate is still lower. But they're saying it spreads fast. It's a mild illness. It spreads all over the place, and it's only out of the 17,000 documented infected. I bet there's hundreds of thousands of cases, 300 deaths. Okay. And always in immunocompromised people, always in people that are at risk for these sorts of things. If they get a severe viral respiratory infection, whether it's flu or corona or whatever, all of these can hurt people who are compromised. They can. The rest of us need to wash our hands carefully, get our influenza vaccines, listen to the CDC. If there's a problem, they will let us know. 
And the thing about Dr. Drew is Dr. Drew is an independent thinker. He is not, uh, you know, I think he was probably more on the conservative side than on the liberal side, but he's not in a political camp at all. He's an independent thinker. The problem with the rest of the press is that they are one massive blob of a beast. You know, this is this is truly the problem that we're having. And, they, and you know, under you, they always say scratch a socialist, find a tyrant. Scratch a liberal, find a socialist. Scratch a socialist, find a tyrant. They're all dreaming of this big government, this crisis that's going to topple Trump. And they're and they are part of the problem. I mean, here's here's a quick montage we put together. This is Morning Joe and Trevor Noah and uh, Colbert, right? Uh, so this is the enter, kind of the entertainment end of th- of communications. Listen, listen to the way they're talking about this. The virus does not care about their stupid politics. The virus does not care about their stupid stunts on the House floor. The virus does not care about their stupid denials or their attacks on the press or on Democrats or on international health organizations. The virus is going to kill Americans regardless of their stupidity. Wow, that is so reassuring and so not true. 1.1 million tests were just distributed for a country of 328 million. So, yeah, no. So the coronavirus tests are almost as perfect as his Ukrainian phone call. We're all going to die. You know, one thing I appreciate about Trump is that even if he does the right thing, he still tells us that he wanted to do the wrong thing. He's like, everyone told me to save those people on the boat, but if it was up to me, I'd let those die. It's, it's it's just amazing, and it really is the the problem with having, especially entertainers, especially comedians, all on one side. This droning anti-Trump chorus that they're always doing—they're not even telling jokes anymore. And it's not good for the, you know, it's it's bad for the country. I mean, I'm sure Stephen Colbert is not a mean person. I'm sure he doesn't go home and beat his wife. But what he's doing is bad for the country. It is not a moral thing to do. And, you know, there's, and there's no one to say so. There's no one to tell him. There's no one who's going to say, you know, Stephen, this is actually a thing that's going around. Some people will die. It's going to be tragic. It's going to be hard for people. They're going to lose money uh, and they're going to lose work time and all this stuff. Maybe maybe telling everybody that everybody's going to die because Trump is the stupidest person ever. You know, there's just not evidence about this. I mean, How dare evidence you? Of that. How dare I is right. I mean, you want to see you want to see a beautiful. This is my cut of the day. This is my favorite cut. Here is a guy, a, a virologist, virologist on MSNBC, a guy named Joseph Fair. And he's trying, he says, you know, we don't want to spread panic, but they do on MSNBC. And he's an MSNBC contributor. So, so he says, we don't want to uh, spread panic. Listen to the cut. This is not to fear monger. This is, it would be irresponsible for us to, to create panic when it's undue. That being said, we know 80% of the population is going to survive and a typically a 15 to 20% rate of mortality for those individuals that are both elderly or have underlying condition. I can say pretty much with certainty that each one of us, everyone in this country knows someone with those underlying conditions. So this is not a political thing. It's, it's going to affect voters on the left, the right, and people that don't even vote. So 
We need to take it seriously. And even if you yourself are going to be okay, you still have the potential and, and are uh, have infecting others that are not going to be okay. So don't panic. 80% of you will survive. So it's okay. Only 20%, only a fifth of you are going to die. Obviously, what he was trying to say is he was trying to say that 80% of compromised older people will survive. And that, I don't even know where he gets that figure since it's very hard for us to know how many people get the disease at this point. But still, but still don't panic. It would be irresponsible for me to panic. 20% of you are going to die. So that's the kind of news thing we're getting. Trump, meanwhile, is doing what he's supposed to do. You know, he still he still talks like Donald Trump, still praises himself all the time. He does all the Trumpian things, but he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's got, he's going to Congress to get a a new package to help workers who. Uh, who might miss a paycheck. He's got uh, backup for people so that they won't uh, lose money if they can't go to work. But the press can always hope. The press can hope that things are going to go badly for him. Here's here's cut 18. This is Eddie Glaude. Really, these guys, I don't even know why they're on TV anymore. And Nicole Wallace, uh, the hope is just comes pouring out of them what they want to see now. This may be, and I, you know, Nicole, I should mention this with little trepidation, but this may be Donald Trump's Katrina. Yeah, you can have to trepidation because <laughs> of my role in that. I mean, I, let, let, let's just lean into that for yeah. a minute. I mean, Katrina was the moment when all of the things that felt incredibly incompetent about the Bush presidency, the appointment of Harriet Myers to the Supreme Court, the botched attempt to pass Social Security privatization. I mean, I, I lived it. I can go through the whole list were realized. We gave them a proof point that we were indeed incompetent. And also people died. I mean, this is this has the making structurally for the same kind of moment. But if there's any a moment that would shake that 40 percent, the folks who would allow him to shoot someone and write down, Mm -hmm. if there's any a moment, it's this one, because it's babies, it's friends, it's loved ones. It's old people in nursing homes that can't have their daughters and sons. It's your nana. Yeah. Right. And so it seems to me that this is an event that could take down a president. <laughs> and the look of hope on his face and joy and glee, the gleam in his eye is just wonderful to see. Beckett Adams in the Washington Examiner writes this. If Wallace and Glaude back and forth sounds familiar, it should for nearly every mishap that has happened since Trump's inauguration in January 2017. There has been someone in the news media to declare it's his Katrina. Could Harvey be Trump's Katrina, asked an op-ed published by the Christian Science Monitor in 2017. A Chicago Sun-Times op-ed declared later that same year of a different weather event. Hurricane Maria is Trump's Hurricane Katrina. How Puerto Rico is becoming Trump's Katrina, Rolling Stone magazine declared of the same disaster. Asked Vanity Fair, is the crisis in Puerto Rico becoming Trump's Katrina? Later in 2018, The Atlantic's Malika Rao wrote on the emotive images of illegal immigrant families being separated at the border for an article titled Trump's Katrina moment. Former New York Times executive editor Jill Abramson wrote elsewhere that year for The Guardian, the forced separation of families is Trump's Katrina moment. CNN's chief legal analyst, I can't stop myself, Jeffrey Dubin, said the border crisis is Trump's Katrina. Wallace herself hosted a segment in 2018 titled Why Family Separations May Be President Donald Trump's Katrina moment. You can only cry wolf so many times. Beckett said, but, but it is the revelation of the wish. It's the wish itself. You know, I mean, this is the thing. It's the, the, it's the idea. It tells you 
It tells you that they were trying and trying and trying to show that Bush was incompetent and they got away with it by blaming him for Katrina, which was certainly not his fault. None of it was his fault. There were a couple of bad moments that he had, but not, nothing that happened in Katrina was his fault. It was the result of Democrat corruption. See, here's the thing. No one knows the future, right? But flus do tend to die down as the summer comes and the weather warms up. So let's say we go into the warmer weather and let's say it, the, the flu passes and the panic passes, and we find, gee, it was, wasn't that bad. Let's just say it. It's not going to be Trump who's going to take the blame. It's going to be these people. It is going to be these people. We will remember. We will remember the way they use this and the fact that they tried to let, not let this, cl- this actual crisis go to waste. We'll remember, and we'll remember who to give the blame. All right. So the Democrat response, you know, Walter Russell Mead, you know, I love Walter Russell Mead. I I always enjoy his columns and he writes this Tuesday column on international affairs. And he has this take on on Trump where he says, unlike human political adversaries, the coronavirus isn't something Trump can bluff, threaten or placate. If the epidemic follows the course, medical experts uh, believe to be largely inevitable, both the disease and its economic consequences will be immune to Mr. Trump's standard tactics. He can't spin them away, divert public attention by creating another drama or blame them on President Obama. In the near future, the mass rallies that have been critical to Mr. Trump's political success may be banned on public health grounds. If he's especially unlucky, one of his rallies could be implicated in a major outbreak. And I'm reading this because here's a guy I don't think is wishing for Trump to fail. This is just his assessment. Many of the key points in Mr. Trump's case for re-election are also at risk. A recession would deprive him of the argument that whatever you think of his character, he puts money in your pocket, a pandemic also undercuts his contention that a wrecking ball presidency is needed to destroy a rotten establishment. That reasoning works better when it comes to university administrators overreaching on Title IX and ultra-liberal journalists than with the medical establishment and public health professionals. Voters tend to like stability in a crisis. The point I was making earlier in the show, that this is the moment when the CDC can shine. One of the reasons we like the CDC more than other bureaucratic uh, agencies is that it comes to the fore in these health crises, and it's got people who are dependent on actual, true, factual information, not like the Department of Education, which is just a political boondoggle, uh, or the EPA, which is now just a tool of climate panic. So the CDC actually does things. Now, I personally, I personally think that uh, Meade underestimates Trump here. Trump knows he can't bully a virus. Trump knows that he's in a crisis. He knows that this is different. You know, they, they, tell, they talk about Trump, Trump like he's a child. And there are things that, about Trump that can be childish. But he's not a child. And he does learn. And he does pay attention to things. He wouldn't be in the White House if he didn't. I mean, he's a very successful man. He does see things in front of him. I think, you know... Again, I think Trump is going to say stupid things, but so far he hasn't done anything stupid. We played a little bit of catch up with the test because the Chinese lied to us, but he was ahead of the game closing the borders. He's done as good a job as you're going to do in a situation like this. Let's take a look, though, at our friends on the left. Let's see how they would do. I mean, here's Biden talking about Donald Trump's cut eight, uh, talking about how he feels about this. There's no confidence in the president and anything he says or does. He turns everything into what he thinks is a political benefit for himself, and he's actually imploding in the process. But there's a lot of innocent bystanders that are being badly hurt. And uh, I just think it, I mean, I wish he would just be quiet. I, I really mean it. I'm not, I'm not, mm-hmm. that's a reason. 
awful thing to say about a president. Well, you should be quiet. Just let the experts speak and acknowledge whatever they suggest to him is what we should be doing. Sleepy Joe Biden, who has no <laughs> clue what the hell he's doing. <laughs> well, let's look at Biden today as, as campaigning in Michigan, uh, the Michigan um, the Michigan primaries today. And here he's confronted by a guy, a voter, who says, I'm afraid you're going to take away our guns. I'm afraid you're going to destroy the Second Amendment. Here's his response. This is uh, cut 17. So he says, you're full of S. And then he gets so agitated by him, he he actually threatens him. He starts yelling at him and all this stuff. This is a guy who's losing control. And, you know, again, I, I'm not diagnosing him. I don't know what's wrong with him. I just know that he's deteriorating and he's getting worse. I mean, he sat there and he yells at this guy and curses out the, a voter who's asking him a perfectly legitimate question. It, Biden said on some program or other that, yes, we are going to take your AR-15s away, although now he calls them AR-14s. He can't even remember the name of the guns. So, you know, I, I don't think that he is a guy who is really the, the guy you want in a crisis at this point right now. Anyway, you know, I mean, I think I think this idea that somehow we've got to get Trump out of there to replace him with these guys. I mean, Bernie says he could handle it better. This is uh, cut 16. What would your response look like as President Sanders? Uh, very different than what President Trump uh, is doing. Uh, unlike Trump, I believe in science. I would not appoint somebody like Mike Pence uh, to be the head of the effort. Pence's record in terms of a disease in terms of HIV outbreak uh, was not a good one. We have to have confidence among state officials all over this country and people all over the world. So we need scientists running the oper operation, uh, not uh, Pence. So let's do what, what Bernie never does, which is get specific about it, right? I mean, first of all, he said if there's a coronavirus vaccine, it's got to be free. Well, if it's free, which means they can only collect money from the government, the people who make it can only collect money from the government. Why are they going to rush to create a coronavirus? I mean, people rush to do things for human motives like greed and glory and business. And they want to have they want to sure they want to do good things for the for those things. They want to do good things to get the good things in life. But of course, it's the free market that develops this stuff. It's not uh, government health care that develops all the new drugs. They come out of America for a good reason. He was asked, he did a Fox uh, town hall, and good for him for going on Fox. And they asked him about borders and the viruses, cut 14. If you had to, would you close down the borders? No. I mean, what you don't want to do right now, we have a president who has uh, propagated uh, xenophobic uh, anti-immigrant sentiment from before he was elected. What we need to do is have the scientists take a hard look at what we need to do. There are communities where the virus is spreading. What does that mean? It may mean self-quarantining. It may be not having public assemblies. Uh, but let's not go back to the same old thing. <laughs> so I mean, think, about, think about it for a minute. For a politically correct idea and an idea that is intended intended to harm this country. It is in, Open borders are intended to fundamentally change this country. When I say harm this country, maybe in the Democrats' mind, fundamentally changing this country is making it better. But for, for most of us, 
it would harm the country. But surely, surely open borders. I mean, in Italy, they're not even letting people leave their towns. Who wants people suddenly pouring in to escape the, you know, people who've been exposed to the virus, say, in some other country? Who wants them pouring in unchecked? Of course you have to close the border. Of course globalization makes this stuff worse. Of course unchecked migration makes it worse. So you've got this guy who is stuck in this 19th century philosophy. He's so stuck in it, he can't see tyranny when it's right in front of him. And he's saying, oh, I would handle this better. And I would let the scientists handle it. As if Trump isn't letting the scientists handle it. As if Trump is somehow uh, getting in the way of all the doctors doing what they do. Chuck Schumer is, is on the floor after, after Donald Trump said he was going to do all this stuff for workers. He gets up on the floor and, and attacks him. Cut six. The federal government's initial response to the coronavirus was slipshod at best. It has greatly hurt the country and it falls at the feet of the president. The buck stops with him. Now, I know President Trump will dismiss these criticisms and accuse Democrats of playing politics. That's what he always does when there's legitimate criticism. Because in President Trump's world, there's no such thing as a legitimate criticism of his administration. And this is a theme that's going around the left. There's a piece in the New York Times, a former newspaper, a knucklehead row. Uh, Jennifer Sr. has a column that says, President Trump is unfit for this crisis, period. And you always know that leftists are serious when they put a period at the end of their sentences. They really mean it then. If they if they start using four-letter words and put periods at the end of their sentence, boy, oh boy, do they mean it. And, and she, atta- she attacks Trump personally. Uh, his narcissism is going to destroy us all. Uh, you know, he's lying about everything. He's not telling us anything. But but, you know, she, she says we're in this crisis of information. We don't have enough information. But it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, there was this one quote where Trump said something about keeping a ship offshore, which they didn't do. They checked it out and brought it in. But he, he said something like, I prefer that the numbers stay where they are, a typical Trump deadpan joke. And this has made them absolutely hysterical. She says that news conference was, to me, the most frightening moment of the Trump presidency. His preening narcissism, his compulsive lying, his vindictiveness, his terror of germs, and his terrifying inability to grasp basic science. All of it eclipsed his primary responsibilities to us as Americans, which was to provide urgent care, namely in the form of leadership. It was like a child, you know? It's like, remember remember during the Bush administration, I'm scared. The leftists are always scared. I'm scared. It's terrifying. It is, it really, it really is something else that they just can't pause, just put a pause in it. They think, because they think it's the Katrina moment. They think they've got them. And the thing is, it is a crisis. It is going to be tough. But they're going to look really, really bad if he comes through it all right, which I think he will. All right. We're going to take a break in a moment. But first, we've got to talk about the deal. There's only one week left uh, for you to get 25% off all Daily Wire membership plans using coupon code NEVERSOCIALIST. I mean, sometimes socialists will give you a little bit off, but you really want to be never socialist to get your 25% off. This is a real deal, so you won't have to call me a lying dog-faced bony soldier. Daily Wire members get an ad-free website experience, access to all of our live broadcasts and show library. You get my show, you get the full three hours of Ben's show, access to the mailbag, and now we have exclusive election insight op-eds from Ben. Daily Wire members also get to ask us questions live, like many of you saw on our Super Tuesday coverage on Backstage, along with all this, of course, you get the magnificent, the irreplaceable, the singular leftist tears tumbler. I take it with me wherever I go. It just fits right in my pocket. 
<laughs> so, and if you haven't already, you can download the Daily Wire app so you can get all of our great content on the go. Again, that's 25% off on Daily Wire memberships for all plans using coupon code NEVERSOCIALIST. This is the last week we'll be giving you this offer, so act now before you regret it. And by the way, you've got to have, be a subscriber if you want to be in the mailbag tomorrow where all your problems will be solved. That's, yeah. that's it. And you will sound just like that. Come on over to dailywire.com. All right. So the Michigan primary is today, and this is a big deal. It is a big deal. Trump was the first Republican to win uh, since Bush won in 1988. So this is a uh, decisive state. And they want to show, the Democrats want to show that they can do something big here. Last time, you know, what happened What happened in with Trump was that the blacks didn't show up for Hillary, basically. And, uh, and Trump got all the rural whites. So Bernie won this primary last time, and it was a big push to his push against Hillary and a real, a real victory for him. But he's polling really low right now. And if he gets blown out, it's going to damage his campaign. He's looking to me kind of like a loser. He's looking like the air is out of his balloon. I mean, let's face it, Biden was looking like that before, but Biden didn't change. Biden didn't make a comeback. The Democrat Party made a comeback for him. It's it's an important difference. I mean, it was a passive comeback. It was not a comeback where suddenly he got his mojo working and suddenly he could remember the name of his wife and suddenly he knew what city he was in and suddenly he knew, remembered who Barack Obama was. None of those things happened. He's still just a blithering idiot. But the thing is, the, the thing is, the Democrat Party got together. The, uh, Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar dropped out of the race. They, they endorsed him. Uh, you know, the, the black in, uh, people in S- South Carolina came out to support him. That gave him power. And he just, it was turned around for him. He didn't change. But Bernie has nobody, right? He got nobody to uh, push him except himself and his supporters. And he's looking just not good. He did have AOC go out. AOC went out and made a speech uh, for him, which I just, I loved for a reason you'll guess the minute you're here. This is cut one. We have Goliaths in our country today. The Goliath of the fossil fuel industry. The Goliath of big pharma. The Goliath of the role of big money in politics. These are powerful, powerful forces. And we are David. We are David. David, all of us, the little guys. What David had to do before he confronted Goliath was to shed his unnecessary clothes. I got my hopes up, really, right there. I thought, like, wow, AOC is really going to bring it. She's really going to do the campaign speech that I want to see. She's going to start to shed her clothes. But no, nothing. It was nothing. It was kind of a metaphor of some sort that I didn't really understand. In my disappointment, I stopped paying attention. So I don't know if that—I don't think that's going to help Bernie. I think if she had gone through with it, Bernie would have won the entire state. Maybe even the Republicans uh, would have shown up. But Bernie did this town hall at Fox. And the most telling moment for me, and it has been the the thing that underpins for me his entire approach and everything he says, was this moment he was talking to Brett Baer and Marsha McCallum. 
And he said to McCallum, you know, like, everybody's afraid that I'm going to bring the Soviet Union and I'm going to bring Cuba and I'm going to bring Venezuela. But no, no, no. What I want to bring is Denmark and Sweden. And this was what McCallum said. I'm talking about Finland. I'm talking about Denmark. I'm talking about Sweden. I'm talking about countries all over the world who have used their government to try to improve life for working families, not just the people on top. If you look at examples in Sweden and Denmark, they have been lowering or cutting property taxes, lowering corporate taxes, allowing vouchers for schools, for public schools. So they appear to be moving away more towards market reform and not towards what you're describing you'd like to see here. <laughs> so and his response was, well, I'm not an expert on the Swedish economy. So he wants to turn our economy into the Swedish economy, which he thinks is socialist, which it briefly was. But he doesn't know anything about the economy. But he knows that Castro was good. He knows that the Chinese communists fed all the people and ended poverty. Uh, he knows this for sure. And this has always really bothered me about him. He's, you know, has he ever been to Sweden? He went to the Soviet Union. He went to Cuba. Has he ever been to Finland? I, I don't think he has. So I just think he's lying. I think he's lying. You know, Mary Anastasia O'Grady, who writes about South America and the Wall Street Journal, she was writing about this yesterday, and she said, Swedish author and historian, she was quoting a guy named Johan Norberg, and here's what Norberg wrote uh, in a Cato policy report. He said, if you want to be more like Sweden, it would translate into more free trade and more deregulated product market. No Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the abolition of occupational licensing and minimum wage laws. A Swedish America would have to abolish taxes on property, gifts, and inheritance and would still have to slightly reduce its corporate tax. Social security would go from defined benefits to defined contributions and introduce private accounts. And there would be a comprehensive school voucher system where private schools get the same per pupil funding as public ones. Sounds like par a capitalist paradise. Mr. Norberg writes that Sweden's experiment with socialism in the 1970s was an aberration in Sweden's history, an aberration that almost destroyed the country. In early 1990s, the social democrat Democratic Minister of Finance, Shell Olof Felt, concluded that whole thing with democratic socialism was absolutely impossible. It just didn't work. There was no other way to go than market reform. So this is, the, this is the thing. He's talking about something that he knows not of, right? He's talking about countries that are always reportedly happy and well-run. And, and they are well-run. They have a very uh, homogenous population. Uh, you know, they have terrible problems now with the Muslim migrants. But before that, they were a completely Swedish, completely Finnish, completely uh, Danish population. And so, they, you know, people who are homogenous work well together and they don't live off uh, welfare and they don't try to, uh, um, you know, play the system because they're all part of a community and they know who they are. We have this big, diverse, wonderful, you know, melting pot, crazy land where we can't do all the stuff that they can do, but they still couldn't make socialist work. And then here's the way he talks about Cuba. Still, this is still on the Fox News. This is after he has been hit for this again and again by people in Florida, uh, you know, who said, no, we actually know Cuba. We've actually been to Cuba. We actually had to escape from Cuba. This is cut 12. Uh, sorry, that was the wrong tyrant. Go, go back to <laughs> Bernie. Do you regret at all saying what you said at that time in this race? No. 
Look, I have spent my entire life fighting for working people and fighting for democracy. What can we say about China in the last 50 years? Would anybody in their right mind deny that extreme poverty in China has been reduced? Can anyone deny that? Of course not. When Obama correctly tried to bring a normalized relationship with Cuba, what he said, I don't want to misquote him, but he said something, I'm paraphrasing to the effect that Cuba has made progress in healthcare and education. You know? Yeah, so that doesn't mean you support authoritarian government. That's amazing. It is amazing. So he doesn't know anything about Sweden, but he wants to turn us into Sweden. But he knows, he knows China's the bomb, the bomb. It, you know, it's funny. There's an article in the New York Times about uh, how Bernie came up. And it starts when he came to Vermont in the late 1960s to help plan the upending of the old social order. The future presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, brought with him the belief that the United States was starkly divided into two groups, the establishment and the revolutionaries. He was a revolutionary. And this is what he wrote in an article for the Vermont Freeman, an alternative paper. He said it called an article called The Revolution is Life Versus Death. Okay. And he says... Um, the piece begins, he says, with an apocalyptically alarmist account of the unbearable horror of having an office job in New York City, of being among, quote, the mass of hot, dazed humanity heading uptown for the nine to five, sentenced endless days of moron work, monotonous work. The years come and go, suicide, nervous breakdown, cancer, sexual deadness, heart attack, alcoholism, senility at 50, slow death. Fast death, death. That was, the, that was his idea of normal life, of a normal job, which is why he never, he's never had a normal job. He's never worked for a living. He's just taken our money. That, you know, that's an attitude of a, a child uh, that, you know, as a young man, I can see somebody having that attitude, experimenting with this attitude. This is an 80-year-old man. This is a man who has seen even more of life than I have, if that were possible, who should be just a little wiser, just a little smarter. And instead, he's selling this emptiness. I think Michigan's going to go badly for him. Obviously, I don't, I can't predict, but I think it's going to go badly for him. And then I think he's going to have a real decision to make of whether he keeps this up or whether he surrenders and gives Joe Biden the field. We will see which he decides to do, but it's going to be a very, very interesting day. Uh, we'll be talking about that tomorrow. All right, a final reflection. I was at uh, Iowa State University in Ames. First of all, had a great time. I just, the, the kids were great. I call them kids because I'm 100 years old, but, you know, these are young adults. Uh, and uh, they, they were just terrific. And it was a full house and in, intelligent questions, uh, important questions, interesting questions uh, about all kinds of things. And at the end, as I was, I gathered with the people from YAF, from the Young America Foundation. They were the people who, um, you know, who had brought me in. And just as I was about to leave, one of them said to me, do you have any advice for young socialists in college? <laughs> and, you know, I hesitated, but all the time I'd been there, people had been saying to me, I have to keep my mouth shut. I have to keep my head down. I don't know what, how to, I don't know how to introduce this without getting hit. And, you know, I know, I know that grown-up conservatives go into colleges and tell people to keep your head down so you get the good grades and then you go on to do your work. And I can't tell them that. I cannot say that to a, to, I can't say it to a man, to a young man, first of all. And I find it difficult even to say it to a young woman, although for, because I'm a sexist and because I think of, i protective toward young women, I sort of want them to stay safe more. But a man should speak his mind 
And a young man should not wait until he can speak his mind. Obviously, obviously, you don't have to fight every fight. And obviously, you should never be rude. And you should never be rude to your superiors. You should be p- treat people with respect who are older than you and in positions of authority. There's no question about it. But to let them exterminate your point of view, to let them silence your point of view, is to lose who you are and who you're supposed to be. And this is why I feel these professors who silence people, who grade people down, are really doing a sinful, wicked thing because they're not teaching people anything except to conform, except to kowtow and except to bow. And unfortunately for these young people, because I want them to do well and I don't want them to lose, uh, get bad grades, but unfortunately they are on the front lines. They are on the front lines of our society. The people who are silencing people in corporations are coming out of the schools. The people who are in HR departments telling people that they have to use one pronoun instead of another pronoun are coming out of these universities and it's spreading like a virus throughout the society because nobody speaks up. You should never, ever have to say what you do not believe, especially in college, especially in university. And, I, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to say to a young person, you know, sometimes you have to stand up. And I told them, I said to them, look, I've stood up all my life and it has cost me a lot. So I'm not telling you that it's free and I'm not telling you that you have to blow your mouth off. And I'm certainly not telling you to be disrespectful of people in authority. But if the young people cannot learn that we have to pay a price to speak the truth, then how is the truth going to be spoken? You, you think that if you compromise, you think that if you compromise, there will come a day when, you are, um, when you're powerful enough that you don't have to hide. But the truth is, as you get more successful, you have more to lose. The truth is there's always something to lose. And the truth is, too, as you acquire a family, losing stuff costs you even more. So if you're not going to speak out, when you're young, if you're not going to speak out when you have nothing, uh, not that much to lose, when all you're really risking is a bad grade, which maybe you'll be able to fight in the end, when are you going to speak out? And again, politely, quietly, uh, in a friendly and reasonable way. But I don't think that we should teach our young people to be silent. And I don't think we should give them that advice and tell them, keep your head down so you succeed, because the country is actually more important than that. And the future is more important than that. And the future is not in our hands anymore. It's not in my hands anymore. It's in their hands. So that was the advice I gave them. So mothers and fathers, when they come home and they've been expelled, you know who to blame. All right. Tomorrow is the mailbag. Be here. All your problems will be solved. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, give us a five-star review and also tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Wall Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. And our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Assistant director, Pavel Wydowski. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio mixed by Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup is by Jessua Alvera. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistants, McKenna Waters and Ryan Love. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. You know, the Matt Wall Show... It's not just another show about about politics. I think there are enough of those already out there. We talk about culture because culture drives politics and it drives everything else. 
So my main focuses are life, family, faith. Those are fundamental, and that's what this show is about. I hope you'll give it a listen. Thank you.